Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, we've arrived at a point in our survey that is well past the Bible era. That means that the writings of the Old and New Testament uh, has ended. The biblical canon was completed. The term canon meaning certain a certain selection of documents were chosen from the many Hebrew and Greek documents. And these chosen documents were used to form our authorized Bible. And this is true for both the Old and the New Testament. That doesn't mean that there wasn't going to be controversy over the centuries over which books belonged and which didn't. In fact, as Christianity splintered into scores then hundreds of factions, there came to be a few different canons of the Bible published as some of the books were tossed out and others were added. And by the way, it remains so to this day. I mean, the books of Esther and of Hebrews as well as the 15 books of the Apocrypha, are prime examples of this ongoing uh, Bible canon debate. Well, as we take up our study, in the 4th century AD, the Roman Empire is still the world power, and the religion of Jesus the Jew has changed drastically since its inception. In fact, it's barely recognizable. One of the biggest changes is that no longer are Jews in control of the religion that declares Yeshua the Jew as its Messiah. Now it's Gentiles who run things. The religion of Yeshua is now split into two major branches. The Jewish branch and the Gentile branch. The Jewish branch is called the Way, and we would call its members Messianic Jews. The Gentile branch is called Christian. Now the Jewish branch, whose first power center at first was in Jerusalem, and it was headed by Jesus' brother James, whose real name was Jacob, now has no center at all due to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the the exile of the Jews from the Holy Lands. The Christian branch has its most influential power center in Rome. Neither the Jewish or the Christian branch recognizes the validity of the other. But this early form of Gentile Christianity was already lining up into two large and opposing factions due mostly to the politics of the day. In 285 AD, the unified Roman Empire split into two. And essentially, Christianity split along with it. Generally, in um, line with the boundaries of those now two empires. The newly formed Western, or rather Eastern, Eastern Roman Empire established its capital in Byzantium. Today that's called Istanbul, Turkey. And the remainder of the empire, the Western Roman Empire, first established its capital in Milan, Italy. 
in a few more years, Constantine would become emperor. He would reconquer the Eastern Empire, reunify it with the Western Empire. But politics, being what they are, he was forced to split the now unified Roman Empire into two governing districts that were essentially the same Eastern and Western regions that he just conquered. However, both remained under his firm rule. The Western governing district's um, capital was moved to Rome. The Eastern district's capital more or less stayed the same as the, as the former Eastern Roman Empire was, but the city of Byzantium was renamed to Constantinople. This change to Rome as the capital of the Western Empire, no doubt had to do with the fact that the Christian Constantine had allied himself to the Bishop of Rome. And he was beholden to the particular brand of Christianity that was practiced there. Here's the point I want to make by telling you all of this. The Gentile Christian religion's power centers, and thus its leadership, happened in direct correlation to the evolving makeup and location of the civil government. So the early Gentile Christian church split into one branch, eventually called the Roman Catholic Church, which was headquartered in Rome. The other branch was called the Christian Orthodox Church, and it was located in Constantinople, formerly Byzantium. And even though the reality was that these two Christian branches each despised the other and created their own separate doctrines, publicly they declared they were still unified. However, the charade ended in 1054 AD when the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and the Patriarch of the Orthodox Church excommunicated one another and the several hundred year old informal split became formal and public. With that as a context now, let's back up a little bit to 325 AD and the Council of Nicaea. Now, this was only a year after Constantine had reunified the Roman Empire, only a few years before he split the governing of his empire into two districts. Again, both under him, but two governing districts. Constantine met with the Bishop of Rome and a number of other church leaders at the Council of Nicaea in order to design this new religion that he envisioned for the Roman Empire. And at this meeting were also representatives of the most currently popular religion of the empire, the Mithraeans. Now the Mithraeans were sun worshippers. A compromise was struck that allowed Christianity to become the sanctioned state religion, but with certain symbols and aspects of sun worship intertwined so as to prevent dissension and possible social upheaval. So we see from this time forward artworks and paintings and sculptures of the Roman Christian Godhead with a glowing disc, a halo 
surrounding the heads of the of um, the pious saints and the apostles and, and, and even Christ himself. See, this disc represented the sun. It was an accommodation aimed at appeasing the Mithraean sun worshippers. Jesus' mother, Mary, Miriam, was also deified as the queen of heaven because the sun worshippers insisted that a goddess figure in line with their religion needed to be honored. So we see civil politics and compromise having enormous influence on the doctrines and icons of Roman Christianity. Well, at that same council of Nicaea, Shabbat, the biblical Sabbath, was abolished. And in place of the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest, it was decreed that the first day of the week would become not a new and different day of rest, but rather a national day of worship. Now please notice, the communal day of rest was replaced with a communal day of worship. Why? Because Rome did not recognize a day of rest. But they did recognize a day of worship that was already part of their culture. Sunday had for centuries been the Mithraean communal day of worship of the sun god. The Bishop of Rome renamed Sunday the Lord's Day. Declared this as the day all Christians were to gather together and worship and so it has remained. Now I want to make something quite clear because most Christians have no idea that this is the case. Sunday is sometimes erroneously referred to as the Christian Sabbath. Or that the Lord's Day and the Sabbath Day are simply two acceptable names for the same day. Not so. It has never been so. The Sabbath was and has always been Saturday. Technically Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. But modern Christians have for nearly 1700 years not observed the Sabbath day, the seventh day, but instead on the first day of the week so ordered by the Bishop of Rome and enforced by Constantine observed a weekly day of worship. Now this church council also created the um, sacrament of Easter. Now though we may think of the Easter bunny and colored eggs and, and all of this as modern day commercial adaptations, it's not. Easter is simply the English translation of the word Ishtar. Ishtar is the goddess of fertility and the wife of the sun god. And another important god in the Mithraean pantheon of gods. Anglo-Saxons, in their language, call her Ostre. So Easter although it was adopted and then modified by Constantine and the Bishop of Rome to represent the resurrection of Christ, was in fact taken from the worship of the goddess Ishtar, and this was so it would appease the the sun worshippers, the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. The rabbit has always been a symbol of fertility. The ovum, egg, has been used as part of that celebration. Hence, Easter bunnies and Easter eggs 
as part of the Christian observance of Christ's resurrection. And just so there's no misunderstanding, that is one of two reasons that Seed of Abraham Ministries doesn't observe the man-made occasion of Easter. The second reason is that there was already a biblical observance called First Fruits, or Bikrim in Hebrew, as found in Leviticus, which is one of the seven feasts ordained by God, and it was on First Fruits, the biblical holiday of First Fruits, that Christ arose from the dead, just as that feast itself prophesied. We observe First Fruits as the day of Messiah's resurrection. Now, what came from this momentous Council of Nicaea can't be overstated. It would forever change the direction of Christianity. It could well be said that out of the Council of Nicaea came the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, prior to this council, although Rome was the de facto center of Christian religious authority, it was the unofficial center, and there were other, but a little bit less dominant centers, Christianity. The Church of Rome was at first not the Catholic Church as we think of it in modern times. It was simply where the most powerful of the Christian bishops resided. And he was the most powerful because he had the support of the emperor, Constantine. Christianity was fractured at this time with the Christian bishops of various regions being more or less independent of one another in the formation of their doctrines and in their worship practices. Catholic, which simply means universal, became the new name for the religion of the Rome-based Christianity and it would be seen as the Christian church in the Western world for the next thousand years. Up until Henry VIII of England, who grew tired of being bossed around by a Catholic pope, pulled away and started what at first was called the Church of England. It would become the root of what we now think of as the Protestant branch of Christianity in all of its many forms and variations. Well, the influence of the Mithraean sun worshippers is most evident in Roman Catholic doctrine in the Catholic icons and in symbols. The Eucharist that's emblazoned with a sunburst is uh, and uh, is 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 uh, one of the main items used in in uh, Catholic ritual. So, does it have something like that at the end of the Pope's staff? Most of the glorious attire of the Catholic ceremonial vestments was taken directly from Mithraean design. The grotto in Rome that was the headquarters of the Mithraean sun worshippers was taken over and converted to what is now called the Vatican, the world center of Catholicism. The Mithraean statue of their sun god sits at the Vatican. The statue was first erected in the likeness of Zeus. But later, the Mithraeans called him Mishra, their chief deity. Today, that same statue still exists in the Vatican, only the Catholic Church has renamed him St. Peter. Yes, the Peter of the Bible, Jesus 
disciple whom he called the Rock, the man whom the Catholic Church calls their first pope, is depicted in the Vatican by the incredibly ancient statue of Zeus. There is much more of the sun worshippers religion um, that has influenced the entire Christian church, east and west. Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. It's not appropriate for us to explore further due to time constraints. But suffice it to say, it was Constantine, Emperor Constantine, who solidified and codified the separation of the Jews away from their Jewish Messiah and from Gentile Christianity. But he should also be remembered as introducing elements of pagan sun worship practices that have become intertwined and cherished parts of modern church traditions. Most churchgoers have no idea of this. But honestly, it's been my experience that the majority of those who are made aware prefer to ignore these realities and continue following these sad but fun and comfortable traditions and doctrines. As a result then of the firm hold the Gentiles had on the religion of Jesus, by 530 AD, Jews were prohibited from holding any kind of government office. They couldn't build any new synagogues. Eventually, Jews could not bear witness in a court of law against a Christian. Any attempt at proselytizing of Christians by Jews was punishable by death, although it was never a Jewish goal to convert Christians to Jews. All marriages that had occurred years earlier between Jews and Christians were annulled. They were dissolved by the government. Well, shortly after the beginning of the 7th century, 200 years of domination by Christianity would be challenged. Not by Jews. The other great monotheistic religion. But by a new order, consisting initially of Arabs and founded by Muhammad al-Ilah. Now, Muhammad was not a desert-dwelling Arab nomad. He was a very refined urban merchant. He was born in 571 AD in Mecca, Arabia. And his father died when he was just a child, his rearing completed by his mother and an uncle. But when he was 25, he married a a well-to-do 40-year-old widow. Many years later, he began having revelations and would occasionally retreat to a cave to meditate. The story goes that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and began telling him of a god named Allah and his attributes and his laws and then Muhammad's mission. He called this new religion of his Islam. And the first few converts were his wife, some cousins, and a handful of locals. And he began to speak against the standard group of pagan gods common in Arabic culture. And predictably, he was persecuted for his efforts. Well, on one occasion, he claims to have been taken on a mysterious spiritual journey to heaven. But it wasn't a nonstop flight. On the way to heaven, there was a stopover in Jerusalem. 
Yerushalayim at that time was a Byzantine city. In other words, it was thoroughly Christian. Now, although Muhammad never in his lifetime visited the holy city of Jerusalem, this mystical experience is what has elevated Jerusalem to the third most holy city of the Muslims. Muhammad continued his efforts at conversion. Finally, the leader of a nearby Arab tribe accepted his teachings, invited him to leave the city of Mecca, where he was under constant harassment, and to come to live with them in Medina. A short time later, Muhammad led an attack by his newfound followers on a large, well-guarded caravan, and he defeated them. One Arab tribe attacking another to rob them of booty was a way of life and livelihood at this time. Like most cultures outside of the Roman Empire, Arabs were tribal. And one tribe constantly seeking to pilfer the resources and kidnap the people of another tribe and this continual push to become the most dominant regional tribe, that was standard operating procedure. Well, the success of his attack was regarded as a miracle and a sign of Allah's favor uh, on Muhammad and his new religion of Islam. He would also change the message, it would also rather change the message of the Koran, which is the Islamic holy book. Now emboldened, Muhammad attempted to proselytize some Jews because he felt they would be brothers with him against paganism. And it is with interest that we find that the first one-third of the Koran, the Muslim holy book, indirectly is in agreement with certain doctrines and principles of Judaism. It even speaks with a, a sense of respect and tolerance towards the people of the book, Jews and Christians. It would seem that due to being a merchant and residing directly on the land trade routes that crisscrossed the Middle East, Muhammad was heavily influenced by direct contacts with Jews and with Christians. We also find that Muhammad built a works-oriented approach to achieving favor with Allah, however, with no need for salvation as Christians would define it, and therefore no need for a savior. The notions of a works-oriented approach much akin to the Levitical text of the Old Testament would, to many, seem to be his model for the Koran. However, upon closer examination, we see that Muslim doctrine, more in its style, more represents the strict legal approach of that Jewish body of law called tradition, or halakha. Well, as we're now at a point some 600 years after Christ's death, a Judaism based almost entirely on tradition and rabbinical law bore even less resemblance to the Bible than it did back in Christ's time. And if you recall, Jesus spent much time denouncing the rabbis and the Pharisees' penchant for substituting their man-made rulings and regulations for God's word. So even had Muhammad used the Jewish tradition as his model, it would have had its problems. But that's not what he did. In essence, Muhammad took his tribes, family God, al Ilah, which had been contracted to Allah, 
and attempted to make it the highest god of the Arabians. Then he wrote his own holy book, the Koran, the last two-thirds of which denounces and even declares war upon Jews and Christians. Allah was formerly the name of the moon god of the Nabataeans and the Sabaeans, the primary religions of the Arab peoples at that time. In that era, every religion, other than for Judaism and Christianity, was based on the worship of multiple gods in some kind of a hierarchy. The crescent moon, which is the age-old insignia of the moon god, is the insignia of Islam. And this makes perfect sense, because the moon god system of worship was prevalent in Muhammad's time, and it was predominant among the Arabs. So while Muhammad attempted to persuade Jews that his new system was monotheistic and based on the Jewish system, he simultaneously told the Arabs that Allah was the moon god and that Allah had a wife, the sun, and many daughters, the stars. The Jews rejected him. He tried the same approach with Christians and had the same results. Angry, he declared that Abraham was not the father of the Jews, he was the father of Islam through Ishmael. And that Christians and Jews alike had corrupted the spiritual truth by their false claim that the one true religion had come through Isaac by means of the Hebrews. This would soon, of course, prove to be an immovable stumbling block in relations between the now three great monotheistic religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Well, we can readily see why the Koran is so often described by scholars, religious and secular, as having a somewhat disjointed quality and message. Because Muhammad attempted to have a system that would appease Jew, Christian, and Arab by retaining some parts of each of their traditional worship systems. Well, in 630 AD, Muhammad took an army of 10,000. He approached Mecca, his former hometown, and the city surrendered. And he led other campaigns, this time against Christians and Jews, who he summarily defeated. He made treaties with those he conquered, and they paid Muhammad large sums of tribute. Two years later, he was dead. Well, the new leaders of Islam now required that all Arabs were to convert to Islam or die. So within 10 years, the Muslims had a huge army and they conquered Palestine, the former Holy Lands, and Syria, and Persia. Next, they conquered Alexandria in Egypt. Then they prepared to enter Europe. They crossed over into Spain in 711 A.D. Well, Spain in the 8th century was Christian, Catholic, of course, as that was the only representation of Christianity in existence at that time in Western Europe. Spain also had a sizable number of Jewish communities. And a few years prior to the Muslim armies entering Spain, a Spanish king ordered all Jews to be baptized into Christianity or leave. The next king reversed that law, but in its place he ordered all Jews to return any land, property, or slaves that they had purchased from a Christian. 
the Jews resisted and rumors spread that they had formed a secret alliance with the Muslims. Those Jews were arrested, they had all their properties and businesses confiscated and they were sold to Christians as slaves. Well, when the Muslims finally did arrive in Spain in 711 AD, the Jews welcomed them, hopeful of liberation from the Christians. The Muslims at first used the cooperative Jews to fortify and to govern many of the conquered villages of Spain. Soon, however, the Muslims did it about face. They required the Jews now to join the Christians in paying the religious tax. And in a few years, concerned Christian countries from northern and eastern Europe made what they considered to be preemptive attack, uh, preemptive uh, attacks on Muslim strongholds in Spain. They won a few battles, they lost a few more. Spain was now splintered into Christian and into Muslim regions with sizable Jewish communities living in each. It's estimated at this time that there were about 300,000 Jews living in Spain. Now Granada was a Christian-held city. Cordoba, that was Muslim. Some tolerance and cooperation had grown between Jew and Muslim when in about 950 A.D., a Jewish scholar and physician named Hazdai ibn Shafrut became part of the royal court of the Muslim caliph, the ruler of Cordoba. In time, this Jewish scholar earned the favor of the caliph and he was able to help his people, the Jews, to a better life. This favorable atmosphere attracted more Jewish scholars. And within a few years, the Spanish city of Cordova rivaled Babylon and Alexandria in Egypt as centers of Jewish religious authority and learning. Spain had become a haven for Judaism. This while other parts of the world were persecuting Jews. One Jew who journeyed into Constantinople, today called Istanbul, uh, which is an Orthodox Christian enclave, reported this, and it's recorded. The Greeks hate the Jews, good and bad alike. They beat them in the streets. Jews aren't even allowed to ride on horseback. Well, word spread and Jews flocked to Spain. Now despite the widespread anti-Semitism, Jews continued as they had for several hundred years in their traveling merchant role. And then as now, people tended to put aside their sometimes strong religious beliefs when it comes to buying, selling, and profit. The Jews learned this lesson very well. And they found that by becoming traders of goods from distant lands, they could cross over borders, they could bring desirable merchandise of all sorts to those of of most any religious conviction. They could make a very good living off of doing this. Few occupations were open to Jews because property ownership for them was outlawed in most regions. The political realities of the times, where Christians vied with Muslims for world religious dominance, afforded the Jews the positions of being neutral emissaries of commerce. Therefore, they could freely cross over national boundaries with their caravans of goods that were needed by members of both religious factions. 
selling goods and making money became so closely associated with Jews that it was understood if you needed something, go see a Jew. What an irony. Just a few centuries earlier, before their exile to Babylon, the occupation of merchant was nothing that a good Jew would ever have considered as a respectable means of making a living. Now the Jews were known for it. Well, early in the 11th century AD, the nomadic and warlike Turks from Central Asia invaded and they took Persia, Iraq, Armenia, and Asia Minor. They overran Jerusalem in 1070. And then they set their sights on Constantinople, the bastion of Orthodox Christianity. For several years, the succession of Roman Catholic popes had pled with the lords and the kings of of Europe to fight the Muslims that had captured and converted to Islam so much of the world. I mean, but their words fell on deaf ears. But with the capture of Jerusalem by the Muslim Turks, the time was right and the cause was supreme. Christians must take back the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem because it was now in the hands of those evil Turkish Muslims. Well, in 1095 in Claremont, France, Pope Urban II delivered a stirring speech to scores of lords and nobles that had been urged to attend this church council at the behest of their bishops. The Pope offered remissions of sins and eternal life to all the aristocrats who would participate in a holy war to reclaim the world for Christ. He also offered territories within the Holy Land that would become their their own divine kingdoms. That did the trick. This was the beginning of the Crusades. Now such was the sentiment of the times that peasants from France and from Germany wanted to join in the fight. Now these poor misinformed serfs had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Nor did they know they were simply pawns being used by corrupt and devious church leadership and by greedy lords and kings. They had no way of understanding that what they were about to enter into had nothing to do with the will of God. For no one but clergy at this time was allowed to read, let alone possess, Holy Scripture. Further, by law, Bibles in Europe could only be written in Latin, a language understandable at that time only by Catholic priests and physicians. What the average believer of that day knew of God's word or what passed for God's word was given to them by the Catholic church structure directed from Rome. Reading scripture was cause for excommunication. Owning a Bible, even a page with but a few verses on it brought with it the death penalty, usually being burned at the stake. Well, thousands of peasants loaded up their families and what few possessions they had onto wagons and they headed south. Many had been convinced by the church that they were preparing for the second coming of Christ. 
knights, noblemen, lords, even sorcerers led various groups in their march to battle the Muslims. The Jewish population of Europe must have been terrified at what they saw as thousands upon thousands of armed peasants and soldiers became joined under the sign of the cross in holy war. Not only were Jews specifically excluded, Jewish villages unlucky enough to have fallen on the chosen routes to the Holy Lands were burnt to the ground. And thousands of Jews were forced to convert to Christianity or die. Jews by the thousands fled to Catholic churches where sympathetic loyal priests, uh, local priests rather, and bishops tried to protect them from these fanatical hordes. Many also fled to sanctuary in their own synagogues which were torched with them still inside while encircled with Christians singing hymns to the Lord. In 1097, several of these armies met up at Constantinople and emerged into a single army of 150,000. Within two years, a contingent of 40,000 well-armed crusaders attacked Jerusalem. The carnage was unimaginable. Anyone, everyone within the walled city was a target. Never mind that a full year before the crusaders arrived at the city, the city had already been liberated by Egypt, which had put a stop to the persecution of Christians and they reopened the churches, even allowing Christian pilgrimage to the city's holy sites. These European crusaders, however, had marched a long way for a long time. The lords and the kings still wanted their territories and kingdoms promised to them by the Pope. The soldiers and the knights wanted this glorious battle that they had been primed for. And they were going to save Jerusalem whether it needed it or not. Records indicate that the hacked off heads and arms of the city's inhabitants were piled taller than a man. Christian, Jew, Muslim, pagan, it didn't matter. All who were inside the city were considered guilty and they were a target. The Crusaders' attack of Jerusalem is considered one of history's most infamous massacres. It's little wonder that to this day, Muslim and atheist alike points to the Crusades and to the attack upon Jerusalem all done under the Holy Cross as its emblem. All murders accomplished in the name of the Holy Church of Jesus Christ as representative of the true nature of the church. This is also why Muslims feel that for the church to speak against the unfathomable violence of jihad, Muslim holy war, and of modern Islamic terrorists, that's the ultimate hypocrisy. Well, despite the Crusades, Nearing 1300 AD, Jerusalem was back in the hands of the Muslims. Europe was now fanatically Christian, and Christianity had taken on a cult-like form. The Inquisition, a permanent part of the Catholic Church, had been established. The purpose, you see, for the Inquisition was to stamp out heresy. Of course, what heresy amounted to and what it consisted of was determined solely by bishops and the Pope so it would change and evolve. 
any means necessary to root out heretics was employed. Torture, bribery, false witness, it didn't matter. Execution and imprisonment were the punishments for heresy, and of course, the ubiquitous threat of excommunication from the church. In southern France, the Inquisition determined that Jews were to be looked upon as demon-possessed. Evil. They were a thing to be exterminated. Jews, for their part, looked upon Christians as idolaters for their worship of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Thousands of Jews chose suicide over forced conversion to Christianity. During the same time, anti-Semitism reached such a fury that the era of the traveling Jewish merchant ended. The church then evoked a ruling that forbade Christians to loan money to other Christians and charge interest. Jewish religious authorities had for centuries forbid Jews to loan money to other Jews and charge interest. Well, Jews, formerly merchants, had money. They had no place to invest it though. But there were no rabbinical rulings against Jews loaning money to Gentiles. Nor did the church say that Christians couldn't borrow money from non-Christians and have interest added. Preparation met opportunity and the Jews became medieval bankers who needed money, who could repay it. Lords, kings, nobles, and businessmen. The Jews now had a new way to make a good living. And it might be interesting to note that eventually, of course, Christians got into the act and they became the large bankers, forcing Jews to become lenders to the peasants who would put up collateral of some sort for their loans. This was the beginning of the pawnbroker business. Now in the mid-1300s, the Black Death spread throughout Europe. With no better answer at hand, the majority Christian population, guided by church policy, decided the plague was the result of Jews poisoning water wells. Others believed Jews had cast magic spells, so they were ejected from their countries. The church, which now looked more like organized sorcery and witchcraft than the body of Christ, used the office of the Inquisition to hunt down and punish those who they considered the very embodiment of evil, the Jews. By the late 1400s, the Inquisition had spread to Spain. Jews were arrested and burned at the stake. In a 12-year span, 13,000 Jewish men and women were executed for converting to Catholicism but secretly practicing Judaism. In 1492, I number ring a bell, the same year Columbus set sail for the New World, the Spanish monarchy ordered the expulsion of all Jews from their country. Nearly 200,000 left for destinations throughout Europe. Thousands more converted to Christianity so they could stay. Later that same year, in 1492, the Pope declared victory. Spain was now 100% Jew-free. But the Inquisition continued. Convinced that many Jews had disguised themselves as Christians and Muslims, or had faked conversion and they were still living in Spain, the Inquisitors set up a spy network to try and root them out. That the authorities of the Inquisition were able to keep 
the confiscated properties and money for themselves of those found to be demon-possessed Christians or devil Jews or, or even Jewish sympathizers no doubt has something to do with their persistence and the near 100% guilty verdicts. More than 30,000 accused Jews after the time of the Spanish expulsion were tortured to death or burned at the stake. Most of them were actually Christians and Muslims. Well, in the mid-1500s, the Pope declared that the Jewish Talmud, a huge compilation of Jewish religious commentary, was a blasphemous work. So thousands of copies of it and every other type of Jewish religious document were confiscated, piled high in the streets of Rome, and burned. In Spain, a Catholic archbishop instituted what was called the purity of blood provision. That is, only Gentile Christians with no Jewish blood in their veins could hold a church office. This notion quickly spread to public and civil office, merchant and trade guilds, school teaching, and so on. Proof of genealogy, free of Jewish blood, was now needed to qualify for all of these positions. Conversions from Judaism to Christianity were in essence annulled. The impenetrable wall between Jews and Christians was now complete. The church now allowed worship of Jesus Christ only by Gentiles who could prove they were Gentiles. Much further north in Europe, there was a place of more favorable prospects for the thousands upon thousands of seemingly constantly displaced Jews. That place, Poland. In 1600 AD, Poland and Lithuania formed a united nation. It was an enormous territory, but it was ruled by feudal kings and aristocrats. These Jews, migrating Jews, became revenue collectors and managers for these Polish noblemen and rulers. It was a highly lucrative deal for the Jews. See, the system was, generally, the Jews would pay the nobleman directly and agreed to sum that represented taxes owed for a, for a village or for a, for a crop. Then they would go and collect from the people who actually owed the tax. The difference between what the Jews agreed to pay the nobleman and what was owed became the collection agent's profit. And it was usually pretty sizable. Interestingly, this system was not unlike the one imposed by the Romans upon the Jews of Yeshua's time. The same system that created the hated tax collectors of New Testament infamy. It may well even be this is where the Jews got the idea. Well, further, these Polish noblemen, they weren't businessmen. They had inherited their lands. and their, They had very little understanding. They didn't have much interest in anything except enjoying the, trap, enjoying the trappings of luxury and having a lot of self-indulgence. Therefore, in between the, the, the wealthy landed aristocrats and these dirt poor, ignorant peasants that belonged to the land, in the middle stood the Jewish businessmen 
who set up shops and inns and markets and all manner of local commerce. They did very well for themselves and they provided much needed services for the local Gentile society. Now religious life in Poland was governed by rabbis and their rulings covered every spiritual, moral, behavioral and cultural issue. Here, rabbinically controlled Judaism reached its peak. Remember, prior to Christ's time, the high priesthood was the legal body that controlled all Jewish, moral, civil, and religious matters. During Jesus' time, a transition had begun in which the high priesthood, in all of its corruption, effectively became outlawed by the Roman edicts that forbade organized Judaism. The pendulum of authority swung to self-appointed but widely scattered rabbis. Now, the Polish Jews, having formed a powerful, wealthy, autonomous society, even though it lay within a predominantly Catholic country, had re-established a central governing religious body, this time officially ruled by rabbis. Well, in 1654, the Jews actually found themselves fighting side by side with Polish Christians against Ukrainian Cossacks who were slaughtering the Poles and the Jews and Gentiles by the thousands. The Ukrainians wanted freedom from under Polish rule. The Poles wanted to put down this rebellion. The Jews wanted to stay, have things stay just exactly like they were. Why? Because if Poland slipped from its feudal system, the Jews would surely lose their lucrative livelihoods. By the time a peace agreement was reached with Ukraine, a quarter of the Polish Jewish population had been killed in that war. Thousands more then left for Germany and for Prussia to escape that bloodbath. We'll continue our march towards modern Israel next week.